0: They tried to stop my shine, but I said, Hold up. Y'all know how many hoes done tried to hold this hoe up. Tokyo Talk to music. Podcast King, I'm good, my flow. I'm good, my people. I'm good to all the haters. I'm- to the I'm good. Everybody, I'm good. To all fans, I'm good. I love y'all, and I'm good. What's up, what's up, what's up, everybody? What's up this week? What's up this week? I'm sorry I'm a little bit late. I told y'all my circumstances of the recording situation aren't always ideal. I like to record um, late at night. But you know, I went to see one of the things I'm going to talk about this week is that um, Quentin Tarantino um, movie. I went to see that thing. That was three hours long. By the time I got out there, I was tired. So there was a no podcast that night. And then just other shit came up. But the point is, I'm here, I'm back, and I have shit to say. So welcome to Craig's Pop Life, a black gay excursion into pop culture. I'm your host, Craig Seymour. You know me. I've been writing about pop culture for more than 20 years now. You can read some of my music writing at rnbeing.com. I know it'd be taking a long time to load, just like... I don't know, load the page, walk away, check some Instagrams, and then it all comes up at once for some reason. But because I have a lot of gifts on it and stuff like that. So just, you know, give it a little time, give it a little time to work. Look, it took me 20 years to write all the stuff. So if it takes two minutes to load, then I guess that's all right um i'm also an author who has written a number of books um there's the biography all of which would make fantastic summer reading by the way for you and your friends and loved ones um the first is the biography of luther vandros which is called luther the life and longing of luther Vandross." It's, i mean they really made sure there's gonna be no confusion on that book title right the original title was called um the original title, was when I pitched the book for Proposal, was called Searching the um, Life and Longing of Luther Vandross. Because I figured, you know, if you're that big a Luther Vandross song, you know the song Searching by Change. And you know how sort of that, um, so much of searching and longing are kind of synonymous. You know, so much of that searching to be, to belong, to find love, to get you up the pop charts, right? You know, all that stuff is um, searching. So it was searching the life and longing of Luther Vandross, but they just want to be real, I guess, just so there'd be no questions. You know, Luther, the life and longing of Luther Vandross. I think that also has, book sales has so much to do with stuff, Just nothing to do with creativity, though, but I think it's also because a lot of times in, like if it's in a biography section Sometimes, or even in the music section, sometimes they shelve books by the topic instead of by the um, author. So I think, you know, just to make sure that motherfucker's going to land up in an L section or a V section, but not an S section for me. I guess that's another reason why they did it. I don't give a fuck. I'm just trying to give y'all some behind the scenes. Um, And then there's my memoir about being a grad school stripper hoe and that's all i could bear my life in the strip clubs of gay washington dc um you can read that while you're preparing to see Barty and J.Lo j lo and all them in the upcoming i think that movie's called hustlers right the, the movie hustlers it seems like people just be making movies overnight like it just seems like i read a casting announcement that something's About to be made, and then a week later, I see an Instagram post about somebody in one of their costumes. And then a week later, there's a trailer for the movie coming out in another month. And I'm just like, How did all that happen? But anyway, um, but I'll be happy because apparently a lot of it takes place in Miami, and I'd love to see. My Emmy in person and on the screen. Um, and then there's my novel, which makes a good summer read. It's about three generations of black gay men looking for love. And that is called Who's Your Daddy? So it's all that to enjoy while you're waiting for my upcoming book special, The Life and Art of Janet Jackson, which I'm working on very hard and making a lot of progress on. But I ain't saying shit until I'm about to... That stuff's about to be put in the UPS mailers, the Amazon mailers, or whatever, and get to people's doors. If y'all got the good prime in, you know, 48 hours, because I just do not want to set myself up again. But just let y'all know that things are going good. Um, In addition to that, I have a website where you can find links for the songs and other stuff that I discuss on the show. It's easy to remember. It's craigspoplife.com. And I have an Amazon shop where I put all the books that I discuss on the podcast and other little stuff that you might want to check out. Everybody's so you know high on all this Janet vinyl right now. All of the links to all your good Janet vinyl is um, on there. And other things like my favorite hot sauces and my favorite novels and this and that. That's at Amazon.com shop slash Craig's Pop Life. So check that out. That's another way. If you you know, like I said, there's a lot of ways to support the show. If you like the show, you know, you can buy some on Amazon. You can tell a friend. Just a lot of ways to support. So and I appreciate all of them. Um so shout out to the show that we did two weeks ago, the Jody Watley Appreciation Show. That definitely that was my show twenty five, right? That definitely got a lot of um Interesting. (laughs) Interesting response. And that would that show came from you via Twitter user at John Redcorn. And I actually heard back from Miss Watley. She posted a comment on my Instagram. Uh just yesterday I saw it. Y'all, I rarely ever read my Instagram comments or my Instagram messages or something. So the best way to the easiest thing I think I see is Twitter stuff, but just don't get tight if you feel like I don't get right back to you or anything like that. It's just that I don't see it because as anybody who's, you know, followed me for a while or known me for a while or worked with me for a while knows, I, I get right back to people. So if for some reason I don't get right back to you, something happened in the, um, just something happened to you in the mix. But yeah, she sent me back, no words now, but she sent me back a heart and a rose emoji. So I thought that was a nice little combination, right? So it's almost like I appreciate it, but also you did a goddamn good job, so I'm giving you a rose, you know? At least that's the way I'm reading it. I'm sure there are alternative interpretations. Um, so there was that, and that was a lot of fun, and I really appreciate when you all – um. Suggest things for me to do, and that one just happened to be really, really perfect. Some other people have suggested stuff that I'm definitely interested in doing, and I'm just going to try to incorporate that in because, like I've said before, sorry if I touched the mic, like I said before, my total focus until the Jana book out is out is just the Jana book and the podcast, and I try, I'm just trying to juggle the two. Um, but I'm trying not to make this overwhelm that because I just Basically, like to use the podcast just to talk to y'all about what's going on, what I'm seeing out here in these streets, and you know, from a black gay perspective. So, anyway, what's going on in the in the pop culture this week? Uh, like I said, I went. My thing I was most excited about was Quentin Tarantino's um, new film, Once Upon a Time in. Yeah, I have Once Upon a Time in Halloween written down. Oh, I need a, I need somebody to do me some better pre-production, but <laughs> Once Upon a Time on Halloween. Anyway, the movie Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So I'm a big Quentin Tarantino fan from way back. Um, You know, like I am have all the full Blu-ray box sets, you know, along with the additional editions of Django Unchained and the Hateful Eight and all like that. And I mean, I think what I love so much about his filmmaking, if I had to break it down, I mean, just the inventive filmmaking you know it always film feels like the film is having fun with itself and with the audience and there's so much playfulness with it you know there's a playfulness with the narrative and the going back and forth and the seeing scenes from different perspectives and all that kind of stuff um I love that and also like that he's not afraid to put his hand on you know the third rail of race in America you know yes sometimes he does it in problematic ways it's not perfect but I do like that he always tries to kind of go in that area because it very much reminds me of um it very much reminds me of just growing up in the sixties and seventies and like popular culture dealt with race and like really, really dealt with race. I mean, even on um Norman Lear shows like The Jeffersons and all in the family and everything like that, they dealt with race. But then we went through this real period of time like in the 80s with Cosby show and everything like that was stuff even that dealt with ostensibly dealt with black life just did not deal with race and did not deal with racial tensions and um Quentin Tarantino is one of those white filmmakers that always kept that into the equation so I always appreciated that and it's just another one of those things whereas um I think you get to be a certain age and 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 you get to be a certain, you know, at one stage of your life, you're watching stuff that people older than you are making. You know what I mean? But then you get to be a stage of life whereas the people that are doing the creating, are kind of around the same age as you are. And so you all have very similar references and everything like that. And that's a really sweet spot of um, appreciating entertainment. And I think that's exactly why I feel about Quentin is like just sharing similar references and everything. And I feel like whoever hots today or whoever, you know, people get into. And I think that's why a lot of people don't like current movies as much just because it's the generation after them and they just don't get all the references and they just don't understand. You know, so, just one of those interesting things, but I definitely feel like Quentin Tarantino is like the director of, a director of my generation. And, um... I just like also about him that especially, and this is something that I appreciate. Especially the older I get, is that a lot of his main characters are kind of down on their luck or at the end of their career. You know, most of them have um, are flawed in some kind of ways and stuff. So it just really allows you to dig into the um, human experience. You know, when things don't go exactly right. You know how to how do you find a happy ending when the road to that is not what you expected it to be. Do you know, you do you even have to redefine what happiness is. So all those kind of questions that I really um enjoy. And I have enjoyed the movies that people um, in fact I'm kind of reversed. like I'm not that crazy about Reservoir Dogs or um, or what you would call it, Pulp Fiction. But, like, I'll watch Hateful Eight, even though that takes a whole damn near whole day. You know, and I love the way that's put together and everything. If you haven't watched Hateful Eight, I definitely recommend that. Um, I love Django Unchained. Um, you know, just kind of the real revenge fantasy realness of it. And I argue with some of my friends about this, too, that are Quentin Tarantino people. I really love Inglorious Bastards. I mean, I think... Um, Again, it's another kind of revenge fantasy, but um, I think just the way it all comes together, and then that long scene in the bar with Brad Pitt, and then, of course, that brought Christoph Waltz to kind of mainstream American audiences. So I really enjoy that, too. I even like Death Proof, kind of heavy on the horror aspect, but... It's smart, and I enjoy it. And then I'm a Kill Bill Part 1 person, you know, just that whole female warrior fantasy, you know, that works at that real mythic level. I love that. But my favorite film, and this isn't just my favorite um, Tarantino film. This is pretty much my favorite film in general. Of course, you know, sometimes that changes on different days. Different alcohol in you, different feelings, whatever. But on most days, my favorite film is Jackie Brown. Because that movie is just so warm to me. I mean, it just feels like an old soul record. And I mean, it just, again, it has all those themes that I was talking about before. And one of the things that always gets me in that film is when she, um, because she had this woman, you know, she got caught up with some trouble with her husband dealing drugs before so she's a flight attendant and she's basically down to work in the worst airline that there is you know but that still ain't paying the bills so she still needs to run some little small hustles you know make the ends meet and then she gets caught up in that and when they're investigating her at one point a police officer says to her didn't exactly set the world out on fire uh, didn't exactly set the world on fire did you jackie and I don't know that line just always destroys me every time because it's just like that's a situation that so much so many of us can be in. I think she was like in mid forties at the time, and it's like, yeah, a lot of people didn't quite set the world on fire the way that they wanted to. But then, what do you do? You know, what do you do after that? How do you still go on after acknowledging that you didn't really set the world on fire the way that you wanted to? to and is it still late to is it still is there still time to do it or is it too late and is there a way to still do it you know even if that's not the way that you may have wanted to do it when you were younger so all of those questions I really find fascinating and um I just love that the movie finds a way for her to you know go out on her own terms to use her wits to use the look she still got you know to pull off a massive height um I said, said height, I meant heist, and almost fall in love again, and so that's just my favorite movie, it's my favorite movie because it gives me hope, you know, because I feel like, you know, sometimes you'd be watching movies, and it's like, at a certain age, he's like, okay, this is cute, I can appreciate this fantasy, this probably ain't gonna happen to me, you know what I mean, I probably passed the stage of life that. All this kind, because I ain't moving cross seas and I'm not dealing with this particular habit and all this kind of stuff. So it's probably not gonna happen. But then you start to get to other situations where you go, you know, I could live with that situation. I could pull this heist off. I think I have enough in me to, you know, pull off this heist. So I mean, Jackie Brown is one of my favorite movies because it reminds me that no matter what, no matter how far I've fallen down, I can still get up. And do it with some style. So that is what it means to me. Um, so, with all that to say, I go into each Tarantino movie with a great deal of expectations. Um, and I was very excited about this one, both because, I mean, for a lot of reasons, it's been so long since the last one. Um, and I was a kid during the whole Charlie Manson, Sharon Tate, Roman Polanski era. So, I've been kind of obsessed with that in some kind of way, um, through all that time, through the biopics, the Helter Skelters, the docu-series, the this, the that's, the that's, the various trials of them trying to get out, I'm glad they kept them crazy asses in, you know, and all that nonsense. So anyway, so there's always, I think, a certain generational, um, there'll always be a certain generational interest for people of my era in that topic. And then, of course, just sort of the first, this is Tarantino's first film in the wake of the post, um... Harry Fire Harry Firestein, child. <laughs> poor man. No, the Harry Weinstein um, situation. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Anyway, the Harry Weinstein situation, and um, just kind of seeing how Tarantino fans, we will always have to reconcile with the fact that this monster of a man who was just going around serially raping and abusing women and um, manipulating them and all that kind of stuff. We will have to make peace with the fact of um, that he, Quentin Tarantino, was his wonder kid. That he put all his efforts into making Quentin Tarantino the star that he is. And that's always going to be problematic and is always going to be complicated. Um, And you know, this is the first time that we get to kind of organically see how we're going to feel about it, you know, without... Because uh, it's, it's hard to change your feelings about stuff that you've already seen. Of course, you can re-watch things, like, in light of what we know went on with Uma and stuff, watching some of those Kill Bill scenes and everything. But it's it's even more challenging, I think, when you're faced with something new. And I was trying to think about parallel, you know, because obviously the R. Kelly thing comes to mind, you know, and it's easy to just mute R. Kelly. Well, it's not easy, depending on who you are, it's easier... Or may not be that easy to mute R. Kelly, Um, but you know it would be. It's not as if Harvey Weinstein is R. Kelly, or that Quentin is R. Kelly. It's like if R. Kelly had kept putting money into a really great, great artist that we love, but then we found out about what was going on with R. Kelly, and there's no real equivalent. You know, like Sparkle had one song. I think we we can let that go or not but there's no equivalent of just the person behind somebody being that i can think of if you can think of other things let me know being so monstrous um so yeah you know you think of something like ike and tina turner well nobody listens to the ike and tina turner stuff anymore so they just listen to stuff that she's done on her own so i don't know these are just interesting questions these are just questions um For our times. It doesn't bring up an interesting story that something that just kind of reminded me, something that just kind of came to mind. I've told the story before, so I'm not trying to say I'm new this time, but I do remember when I first interviewed Janet Jackson in 2001, she had mentioned, and you know, this was coming off of, it had been, you know, it had been a good minute since Poetic Justice, and it was kind of that thing, but I think maybe pre-Clumps or whatever, but anyway, she was, we were talking to her about what were her plans for Hollywood at that point? Cause it still wasn't quite like she had completely closed the door to that or anything. And she once told me that Harvey um, Weinstein had told her that if she was willing to just put all the music aside and just to completely um, concentrate on film, that he would do everything he could to make her like the biggest movie star in the world. So she just said that and she's like, ah, ha, 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 ha. Um, now, when I talked to her um, in oh, was oh six or oh eight, and so six, so a couple of years later, and I just brought back that back up, I was like, "Well, didn't Harvey, Harvey um, Weinstein say something, something?" And she was like, "Yeah, well, people say a lot of things." So she was very like just dismissed it and stuff, and I just figured it off as, "Yeah, people just talk a lot of shit," and it was no big deal to it now however knowing all we know about how dirty you know harvey weinstein did people i'm kind of wondering if there's more of a story to that did he try to pull something or did he you know do we need to beat his ass on um behalf of the Jan fam like did he try to you know whatever so all i'm saying um but let's get into this good film so like the topic of the film um the new film Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's about a has been Western actor played by Leonardo DiCaprio. I mean Western actor, like he's in a lot of TV westerns. Um, and his best friend and stunt double, Brad Pitt. Now Leonardo's character, Rick Dalton, it's one of those TV types. You had them around a lot in the 70s, in the 60s and 70s, people that had like migrated from maybe they used to do films. And then they started doing TV. They may have done a couple of TV shows and then as starring or co-starring roles. And then now they were just these guest stars that showed up here and there. And then maybe every now and then they were on a TV game show. There was like a whole lot of actors that were just around. You, didn't, you couldn't even really be sure where you knew them from originally or what where they got their shot. Because it wasn't like any kind of Netflix. You couldn't go binge their old TV show. It's just all of this was just kind of in you know, in people's minds, so he plays one of those type of actors, and he's kind of at the end of his career, whereas he was in a TV show, but it looks like that's winding down, and now he's getting a lot of guest spots, but mostly as villains, and apparently in the TV Western industry, once you start playing the villain a whole lot, you know you're not going to get you a good man-in-a-white-hat TV pilot anymore, you basically set your lot, and um, he's gotten invitations to go over to Italy to do spaghetti westerns over there because they're popular, but he's not sure if he wants to do that. And um, But nevertheless, even though he's been struck, you know, even though he never really was huge, huge in Hollywood, just because of the way the times were back then and the real estate and everything, he was able to Get himself a nice little piece of Hollywood property in a neighborhood. You know that was a nice neighborhood, and the neighborhood has become so hot that now um, the hot director Roman Polanski, who had just done *Rosemary's Baby*, and his girlfriend, um the starlet Sharon Tate, were now living in a gated community right next spot, and a little not a gated community, but they just were living in a house right next spot, right um, next door, but it had a gate. So. Basically the film is set around the backdrop of what we know about the Charles Manson murders and how, you know, the Manson family murdered the pregnant Sharon Tate who was just 2 weeks before giving birth and her friends that were with her at the time and all this kind of just hideous um mess and it's just um it's just all stuff of sort of Hollywood generational crime drama lore at this point but fortunately once upon a time doesn't really deal with the details of the case because that's been done so many times instead it kind of just creates a beautiful sunlit portrait of what Hollywood was like at that time you know what it felt like to be a star on the rise I mean you really see that into the um beautiful portrayal of like Margot Robbie as Sharon Tate just she doesn't say much but just you just see she just embodies kind of um this sort of privileged hopefulness. Do you know what I mean? It's like, obviously she's there because she's beautiful and um, and she knows that and she plays upon that, but also she has this hunger to be better, to be greater, to be funny, to be um, something is more than what people take her as, is this just kind of pretty playmate. And she does this all through this performance without almost saying anything. And then Leonardo and Brad make it kind of a buddy picture because even though Leo's, you know, he's this Western star that's kind of falling off and he's forced to go to Italy to make these Westerns. Well, as his bodyguard, Brad's character, um, Cliff Booth, is having it even worse because, you know, if you're not getting work, then you know your bodyguard is not getting work. Not your bodyguard, your stunt double's not getting work. And then there's some things in his past where producers don't even want to... Um, pay for him to do stunt work anymore anyway so he's mostly just doing odd jobs for um Dalton's character and stuff so you know we have one person that's hard on their luck in terms of the industry and then one person that's really really hard on their luck just for a variety of reasons and their paths cross with um Roman Polanski and Tate and also um with the Manson family, which is holed up at a place where they used to shoot some of their old Westerns. So all of this stuff starts to come together in very interesting, um, ways. So without giving any spoilers or anything like that, um, my, and my overall obsess my overall assessment of it is that, you know, it's very, very entertaining. I did not, you know, there was not a minute I was bored or anything like that. It wasn't it, and I didn't really feel, even though Tarantino has gotten to this place in filmmaking where so many people have incorporated his tricks that when we see we see him do his own stuff. It sometimes doesn't even seem that imaginative because other people have copied him so much. But I thought the storytelling was sharp as usual. um and I thought like I said, it was just a really interesting take on that era I guess my biggest complaints were just that um, it was one of his first films that I can even remember where there was almost no discussion of race where race didn't come into it at all And that was a really missing dynamic for me, especially considering that the movie took place in 1969, just a year after the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. It just seemed like you know, and there had been the Watts riots earlier in the decade in Hollywood and everything like that. It just seemed like race, there was a way to bring race into it, and if race wasn't a part of it, like if Black people have been kind of pushed out of the Hollywood milieu for whatever reason, or what, then that should have been talked about too, based upon what he's done in his other films. I mean, you definitely should have gotten the sense of what race relationships were like, even in a superficial sense in that area, and you don't get any of that. So I thought that was very disappointing because one of the, like I said, one of the reasons why I like him so much is that he's always brave enough to deal with race, and there's no such thing as um you know an era where you can't when you're talking about this country where you you're not talking about um where you could not be talking about race so that was very disappointing to me um i guess the other thing that was kind of disappointing to me just in terms of the fact that his characters are always a little offbeat. And like I said, a lot of times they're down on their luck and everything. But these characters were kind of like law and order types, you know, being associated with the Westerns and stuff. And even though they were playing the villains and stuff, there was very much of that kind of law and order-ish vibe. And we know Westerns, you know, white people playing Native Americans and all sorts of stuff like that. I just felt like all there was that was really ripe to get into. And I mean, quite honestly, based upon the behavior of Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt, these did not seem the two types of people that would be most progressive on racial issues. You know what I'm saying? These seem like in modern day they'd be MAGA hat wearing center home types. So to kind of like not address their racism or to show a reason why they weren't racist, I just felt like that was really sidestepping an issue that was particularly problematic to be doing it at this particular time. Because like I said, the movie's set in the past, but you know the context in which a movie is coming into. And given the racial divide that we're currently living with, I just felt like to do a movie that just sort of tries to tiptoe around race was really just sort of weak. And, um... That is the other thing that really bugged me about it, too. I mean, a lot of it, so much bugged me about it, just in terms of this particular context. And I do think it's fair to critique a film that, that even though it takes place in a historical time, based upon the current context, because they know they're making the movie for the modern times. They're not making the movie and sending it into a um, time machine and going back for the people that or around at the time. They're making the movie for us now and what our experiences are now. And to me, it just kind of came across as like just another narrative of, oh, how bad white working class folks have it. And, you know, just an obsession with, oh, the problems of white working class folks, you know, what motivates them. What You know, it's so sad. They used to have all these TV shows where they could shoot People of color, but now that genre ain't as popular anymore, so there are not as many TV shows on that they can shoot people of color, so now they have to go to Italy to shoot people of color or take the roles as the villain And people so they can't even be the person with the white hat. I mean, all of that stuff is subtext to what was going on here, and... Um, I feel that that's just such a connection to what's going on in our political dialogues. Just this obsession with you know the white working class voter. you know is Biden going to be able to get them? Are they still going to vote for Trump? Or you know is there any way that they're going to be able to vote for Kamala or Buttigieg? I'm just so tired of this obsession with the white working class man and the sort of either the You know, it's either two poles. It's either the dignity of the white working class man who just wants a job and just voted for Trump because he wanted something different, but he can, you know, appeal to his humanity and you can bring him back around or just, you know, the white working class man that just voted for Trump because, like one of those people said at one of the Trump rallies, you know, he's like, yeah, I don't have Medicare and I, you know, I know I'm getting sicker by the day, but I don't care. I just don't want them to have it. Or one of those type of people. Either way, I just felt it was kind of sideswept, all of that. And so I wasn't really feeling this uncritical celebration of two white working class buddies. Because to me, Tarantino films are supposed to question things and raise issues that make us uncomfortable. And this one just plays it far too safe for me. So all that to say... You know, should you see the film? The film looked beautiful. It's very charmingly acted, very well done. Um, like I said, I'm not really interested in narratives that center white working class men and stories that really don't have anything to do with them, even if these stories don't involve what race because you know, that's generally the thing whereas, you do a story about, let's say, race, and then you just insert some white people in it, and then the story becomes about them and not about the white people involved. In many ways, um, talking about the Sharon Tate situation, this was kind of similar in that you take these people that weren't really involved in the situation, you put them very much involved, and all that to say, I think that there could somebody's going to do a fierce feminist critique of the movie um, and the idea of the white working class male savior complex at some point. But that's not this podcast. That's somebody else's podcast. And I really look forward to um, listening to that. But, you know, if you love Tarantino, grew up with them, obsessed, grew up with them like me, obsessed with the era, by all means, go see it. You know, if you didn't, and you don't have any particular fascination with that era, then I would say just skip it and catch up on Euphoria because Euphoria has some of the best, um, most interesting storytelling on TV, video, whatever. It just has some of the best storytelling around right now. And so I think your time might be better spent doing that. So moving on, um, of course I spent a great deal of, not the last show, not even the show before that, but I think two shows before talking about the wonderful attributes of Tom Holland's ass as, as featured bear except for a thong in the Spider-Man costume I hope we all of you all have had a chance to enjoy it's all it's rounded glory in IMAX and IMAX 3D or whatever you might have seen it in um well as a lot of my Twitter followers um, found out, I also discovered shortly after that podcast that in addition to all of Tom's other extremely cute-ass qualities, he's also Jan JanFam. I read in um, London Sunday Times, which um, was the same paper, incidentally, that had Janet on the cover a few weeks earlier, that Tom is a longtime Janet Jackson fan and, at the age of 10, started dancing because of her. Let me repeat, he started dancing because of her. Remember I told you um, last week that he was in the um, Billy Elliot musical in the West End. In fact, I found a music, I found a video um, which I posted on the Craig's Pop Life website of 13-year-old Tom Holland discussing his role in the show. And you could just put the, the... him discussing, uh, realizing him discussing the importance of Janet Jackson in him deciding to dance and then deciding to audition for the show and then ultimately getting the role. You could just read all that in subtext, right? Um, and then, okay, so with the Billy Elliott show, he had to learn gymnastics and acrobatics. And so I posted another video of him performing with um, two of the other Billy Elliots. Remember, I told you that the show rotated, Billy Elliott's not ever want to buy a show. Buy a ticket because I wanted to know the Billy Elliot that I was gonna see. I wasn't do. I mean, I may played the lot over some money. I ain't lotterizing with my Billy Elliot, so that's why I never seen it. But anyway, I posted a video of him um, and two other Billy and two other um, of Billy Elliots performing the um, big number electricity that was written by Elton John. So you can see them jumping, tumbling and carrying on and um, all those were skills that helped him land the Billy Elliot gig. So basically, had he not started dancing because of Janet, and then went on to get this Billy Elliot role where he learned to jump, tumble, climb, and do all that carrying on, he would have never been Superman, I mean, Spider-Man. So in my humble opinion, Janet Jackson basically invented Spider-Man, or at least this incarnation of it. So now, as soon as I found out um, that he was a Janet fan, I immediately tweeted him at Tom Holland 1966. And asked him if he would share his Janet Jackson playlist, and many Jan Pham retweeted. You know, and you know you want to give us, you want to give an international superstar actor a certain degree of time. You want to just be blowing up. You want to be. Hey, hey, hey! I, I tweeted you five minutes ago, but you know, you give a person a particular amount of time. They are busy, and also maybe they're being very thoughtful about their playlist. You know what I mean? And and thoughtful. I appreciate a thoughtful playlist. I appreciate you not just give me no, you know, the the top 10 or whatever. I appreciate you thinking about it. So I wasn't really trying to blow up his Twitter, you know what I mean? But it has been a bit at this point. It's been, I think we're going on a month. Um so never one to just, you know, wait on something that I can feel like I can make happen. I just thought you know, why don't I just come up with my own, imagined Janet Jackson top five for Tom Holland. You know, I know his age. I know other music he seems to like. I know songs that he seems to talk about in the media. I was like, let me come up with my own top, Janet Jackson top five for Tom Holland. Y'all ready? So here we go. We're going in reverse order. Okay. Number five, someone to call my lover. Now, let me tell you why. Okay, the reason that is because, like a lot of young British white boys, he's all into Ed Sheeran. So I thought he'd like, you know, the acoustic guitar sample from um, Ventura Highway by America, which incidentally is one of Jimmy Jam's favorite groups. And so I figured, you know, with all of that kind of, you know, that would kind of give him that little Ed Sheeran feeling and everything like that. So that was the reason for that. Now, at number four, I'm going to put Feedback. Now, let me tell you why. Now, Feedback, he had been around 11 or 12 when Feedback came out. So, I felt like that's that age. You can really, you know, kind of get into music yourself. And you can kind of watch it yourself and um, without using any parental assistance or anything like that. So, I just felt like, and, you know, we know he likes superhero-y stuff. And and so, she's damn near dressed as a superhero in the video. And, um... We also know that he really likes Smooth Criminal and I feel like feedback has that kind of similar off kilter kind of beat. So at four, I'm definitely gonna put um I'm I'm definitely gonna put feedback. And you know, also the video is is in addition to superhero, the video takes place in space as she's leaping from planet to planet in the cosmos and um I don't know how many of y'all seen the new movie, but at one point he downplays himself and tries to tell um, Samuel Jackson character, no, I'm just your neighborhood, I'm just your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. And Nick Fury looks at him like, bitch, please, you've been to space. So I thought that feedback would be Tom Holland's nice number four, kind of Janet space jam, if you will. Now my Tom Holland number three might be a little bit unexpected. But y'all know he's dating Zendaya on the low. Um, Again, shout out to Euphoria if you're not watching, start to watch. And Zendaya is also a Janet stan and once told um, BET, she said, I live for her. And the video for her 2013 single, We Play which I had never heard of. I'm not going to try to front like I know all Zendaya back catalog like that. But in any event, when I called it up and watched it, I did see that it was inspired by Janet's The Pleasure Principle" video. And then she went to the legendary October 16th, 2015 stop on the Unbreakable tour in Inglewood. Now, um, close, you know, wheeled. Jan fan historians will also recognize that as the same date attended by Beyonce and Blue Ivy. So that was the place to be um, that particular night. So she and Tom are a low-key couple. And you can just imagine the cosplayness of it all because he already got the Spidey suit. And, you know, Zendaya can pull off any Janet look with just the hair on her head. She don't need no wigs. She don't need no anything. She don't need no pieces. She just, all all she need, every single Janet style era is just a twist, a braid, or a hot comb away. I mean, she's trying to do some control era style. She might need some emergency mousse or some hairspray or something, but you get the point. They could be cosplaying all over the place with the Spidey um, Janet situation. So, I can imagine, you know, that on, that, and they also, you know, kind of, you know, very informed entertainer. So I know they probably go back in their back catalog. I know they're not just sticking to, you know, the greatest hits. So I can imagine, you know, on date nights or something, they might go back through the little catalog, you know, but be searching through the little Spotify's and little titles and, um, or just, oh, they could just be letting Janet radio play, you know. And I can imagine that they hit on, um, when we, ooh, might hit on, the boom, and that starts to play, and I, now, hear me out, and I just think that, um, you know, that kind of, because it starts kind of dancing, like, it's a sexy song, but it doesn't, like, it's not like, would you mind? It's not like, I just want to do, ah, which might be a little too much for the little youngins, you know, because they still in their early 20s and stuff like that. But I think, ooh, when we oo's a little seductive type song, a little Caribbean vibe to it, and um, everybody saw that, that he likes, you know, sort of Afro-Caribbean beats, saw that video of him um, doing that viral dance to, um, controller. So, I think, um, you know, I think When We Ooh, that to me would be, I, I really could see them getting down to that, that being like them their little song and stuff like that. So, that's number three, When We Ooh. Now, for number two, I went with Art. Reason being, the video has that old Hollywood feel with Sid Cerise and Cab Calloway. Cab Calloway. And, you know, Tom, when they did Lip Sync Battle, Tom picked a song from that era, Singing in the Rain, when he was on when he was on the show with who else is Zendaya. So I just thought he would get into all that, um, you know, swinging on shit and tap dancing and doing all that kind of stuff in old Hollywood, whatever, whatever they do. It's not particularly one of my favorite videos, but, you know, I can just, that. if you're into that old Hollywood type thing, I can see that that would be your your old type Hollywood thing. So, yes, so number two, I would say Tom Holland would probably like. Um, all right. Now, number one is pretty obvious since he's talked about in the press a lot. His mother used to play the song for him when he was a baby, and I guess through his toddler years, and he was obsessed with dancing to it. And that song is Together Again. Um, That's where it all started for young Tom. So until we get his actual playlist, again, at Tom Holland 1966, y'all can still keep the movement alive now. Call me wrong, but um, this is what I'm going with. So what was that? So again, the Tom Holland... Top five was, which of course I don't have prepared, but I'm going to go back through it. Number one, together again. Number two, all right. Number three, when we ooh. Number four, feedback. And number five, someone to call my lover. That's my prediction, and that is what I am going with. Now, to move on from this ridiculousness, um, I really want to close with a book that I really um that I recently finished reading and I really enjoyed. I know, you know, we're still trying to get in our summer books, starting to get in our summer book readings. And I know you can't, you know, after you've done read Luther, after you've done read about me stripping in grad school, after you've done read about me dealing with life and love in my 30s and 40s, and you're just like, I need something else to read, you know. There are other books out there in the world that I can recommend. Um, you know, it's funny because time, you know, we're having this hot gay summer and all this kind of stuff and everything like that. I don't know why, but I'm in the middle of reading David Blight's excellent but, like, 900-page-long biography, Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom, which won the Pulitzer Prize last year, Pulitzer Prize in history. Um, so, like, everybody else is reading these cute little books. I'm dragging this big old book because it's one of those books that – um I have it on multiple versions, so I'm listening to it on Audible, but I'm also reading it. But a lot of times if a book has like a lot, a lot of nice pictures in it and has a lot of nice archival things, I go ahead and buy the actual book because those are easier for me to see than on my Kindle. So I'm dragging around, in the middle of summer, I'm dragging around a 912-page book. But... um you know, it, it's fantastic. I can't even tell y'all how um, fantastic it is. I'm keeping notes, and when I finally talk about it, I can really give y'all a sense of um, how powerful it is. And apparently, the Obamas are developing a biopic um, based on the book for Netflix. So it's really um, fantastic. If for some reason you don't feel like looking like a nerd carrying around a 912-page book while all your friends are, you know, I don't know, reading Zane and Pina Coladas, whatever do it, but um, it's great. But another book I really wanted to tell you about was really, really funny and quite moving. Very, very surprising. I kind of re- read it on a whim, and I just fell in love with it. And it it's definitely a cute summer read. It's definitely that read that you take with you on a um, like an August weekend to the beach or maybe on that last little Labor Day trip. It's very funny and very quirky. Um, The book is called The Talented Ribkins, and it's by Lady Hubbard. And it's about a black family that has strange superpowers, okay, dating back to at least Jim Crow. The patriarch of the family has a keen sense of smell, and he developed the best barbecue sauce in the land, um, which made people hail him as the rib king. But as with what happens to so many black entrepreneurs of the day, someone stole his good recipe, and the family missed out on the fortune. So that was one of the superpowers, the ability to smell. All these superpowers are weird as fuck. I mean, none of the superpowers are, like, super-duper practical. They're all just kind of, like, a little bit off. So that's kind of what makes it interesting. So the next generation tried to put their um, powers in the service of the civil rights movement by forming what's called the Justice Committee. So through talents like scaling walls and... um one woman has an arm that's like a hammer, and another woman can just project, project an alluring beauty, even though she's not the most beautiful woman in the world. she she can project and make it look like she's um a real beauty. So they protected movement leaders, as they civil rights movement leaders as they passed through various southern towns. and they would cause distractions to make sure that white protesters didn't get out of hand. But of course, they didn't really get any credit for it because they were doing it on the low. So it would just kind of seem like these things were stopped or these things. It just was seemed like these things went off without a hitch. But what people didn't know was the efforts that the Justice Committee had put in in order for these things to um, go off without a hitch. So as with many of us, they fell on hard times and they had to disband Um, you know, despite what you see on TV, ain't no money in superheroing, at least not for black folks working for cause. So they really couldn't find a way to monetize, you know, their um, their little superhero skills. So then we meet Johnny Ripkins, who can make a map of any place without ever seeing it. So if you say, I need a map of this building in this place or whatever, he can actually do a map of it. But now he, in order to make some money, because that's a really weird skill, right? Um, He, in order to make some money, fell in with some gangsters. And now you know what kind of maps they wanted to find and what they were going to do with the maps. So anyway, while he's been finding money for his bosses um, who've been stealing it, he's also been skimming a little off the top from time to time until it finally catches up to him. And the man he's been working for finally tells him, like, look, I, can, I know you've been stealing from me and you have X amount of time. It's like a week or, you know, two weeks or something like that to pay up. So, of course, the man don't have no money. All the money he's had is the money that he's been stealing. And, it, you know, he has, it's not like he's been living large or anything. So what has to happen is he has to go back through his whole family past and just various places that he's hidden money in the past while he was working with the Justice Committee and for other reasons. Um in order to try to come up with enough money so that his boss and the thugs that his boss have sent to kill him um, don't find him. I mean, don't kill him. So the interesting thing about that is as going back to his past, he has to rekindle these family connections and you get to find out more about the family and what um, kind of went wrong. And it's wild. I mean, he's digging up everything. He's going in people's mama's houses digging and you know people don't like messing up. You know how much you have to convince somebody to let them <laughs> dig up your mama's house. So anyway, and along the way, he meets a niece that he never knew he had. And she has a weird power. She has a power to catch anything you throw at her. So she let just lets people throw bricks at her head, bottles at her head, all sorts of things at her head. And the story becomes about Johnny trying to help his young niece understand her powers and discover some kind of deeper purpose for them, you know, while he's also trying to scrounge up this old money and outpace these thugs that are running after him. So it's very funny, it's moving, it's suspenseful. Um, Like I said, it's funny, but it's also deeply moving in the way that it talks about family connections and all the good and bad things that are passed down over generations. And one of my favorite lines is about the turning point when you have to decide whether to go into Go in a mentor's um, path or forge your own path. And she writes, sometimes the only way to follow someone's example is to not follow at all. Sometimes you have to go out and get your own. So I really highly recommend it. It's a quick read. Like I said, it's just one, of the, just one of them things you throw in your bag. You know, you throw in your bag on that Friday afternoon. Maybe you get off a little early. You know, you probably 100 pages in before Saturday morning, and you finish with it by the time you pull into work, you know, on Monday. And, again, it's The Talented Ribkins by Lady, Lady um, Hubbard, and I put it on the Craig's Pop Life um, Amazon store. So, again, y'all, I appreciate y'all hanging with me. Um, I'm sorry it was late again this week. It's just a little awkward um, If I can't do it exactly when I normally do it on Thursday night, it just gets crazy. Like, I don't know if you've heard it today, but people have been walking back and forth and doing all sorts of crazy stuff. And, um, you know, I tend to like to do it when I'm here by myself. But whatever, I persevere, I get it done and whatever. So until next time, be cool, be kind, be creative. And in the words of my fave, be your damn self. (laughs) Okay, I love y'all. Bye. Oh, and keep those recommendations coming. I love them. Take care.